Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Ty Cobb is baseball royalty, maybe even the greatest player who ever lived. His lifetime batting average is still the highest of all time, and when he retired in 1928 after 21 years with the Detroit Tigers and two with the Philadelphia Athletics, he held more than 90 records. When the Hall of Fame began in 1936, he was the first player voted in. But Cobb was also one of the game's most controversial characters. He got in a lot of fights on and off the field and was often accused of being overly aggressive. And then after his death in 1961, something truly bizarre happened. His reputation morphed into that of a monster, a virulent racist who also hated children and women and was in turn hated by his peers. How did this happen? And who is the real Ty Cobb? Setting the record straight, author Charles Learson pushed aside the myths, traveled to Georgia and Detroit, and retraced Cobb's journey from the shy son of a professor and state senator who was progressive on race for his time to America's first true sports celebrity. And in the process, he tells of a life overflowing with incident and a man who cut his own path through his times, a man we thought we knew, but really didn't. In my recent interview with author Charles Learson about his new book, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, I began by asking Charles how long he spent working on the book and how much time did he spend in Detroit doing research. Well, I spent I spent a lot more time on it than I planned originally going in because it became it was a lot sort of a deeper and more complicated story than I thought it was, and uh, I spent a total of uh, just just under four years researching it. And um, in Detroit, I, well, I met, I must have made a half dozen trips to Detroit of uh, various duration, and you know uh, sometimes as long as a week and sometimes as long as a, as short as a day. Uh, but I spent a lot of time in the Detroit Public Library. Uh, the Ernie Harwell collection there is uh, is a great is a great thing for any old Tigers fan or Detroit fan. Anyone can look at it and page through it. It's got all sorts of things, um, including and especially in my case, it had old uh, uh, copies, uh, carbon copies of uh, letters from the Tigers front office in the early years of the 20th century. And that was really fascinating because in those days there were no agents and the um, the players communicated and negotiated directly with the executives on the team and the manager and the and the equivalent of the general manager. And so you see their, their negotiations, and some of it gets very personal and uh, colorful mm-hmm. uh, uh, going back and forth. So it was a fascinating uh, thing to do, and no one ever uh, really uh, did that before, uh, no other Ty Cobb authors. Why did you decide to write a, bu- a book about Ty Cobb? And, and d- did you go into this with the feeling, well, there's I've heard some things that are going to disprove, you know, the, the stories about Ty Cobb, namely fantastic ball player, terrible bigot, terrible racist, horrible human being. Did, did you have preconceived notions about Ty Cobb? And why did you want to do a book about him in the first place? Well, I did have preconceived notions. I did think he was a horrible human being when I went into it and a, and a, and a racist. And I, I believed... Uh, I believe what I've been told, you know, since I since I started hearing stories about baseball as a, as a, as a boy, um, and I, I went into it just because there hadn't been he's he's such a major figure in baseball, whatever you 
think about him. Uh, he still has the highest batting average ever, 366. Some people argue that it's 367. We could get into debate about that. But uh, uh, he's, he's, he's definitely one of the greatest baseball players, the, the first guy elected to the Hall of Fame in terms of the number of votes in 1936. Uh, but he did have this bad reputation. As I started my research, I very quickly in the research began to see uh, that um, you know he he wasn't the person who he, who had been depicted as in his last in the last major biography of him, which was written in nineteen or published in nineteen ninety six. Um, so it's been a long time since since there's been a a major book about him. And uh, what I found out quickly was that book was really uh, a pack of lies, and it was a, a an exercise in sensationalism and dishonesty uh, put together by a writer who was um, just trying to sell books. Mm. Who was that writer? Do you mind being more specific? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Ty, Ty Cobb scholars know his name very well. His name is Al Stump. Right. And uh, he, uh, he, he's, he actually wrote one book with Cobb, j- just as Cobb was dying in 1961, one of those kind of as-told-to baseball uh, biographies. And then he wrote a very scurrilous article about Ty Cobb a few months after that book came out, and, and in the interim, Cobb had died. And, um, and, uh, and that really raised a lot of eyebrows because it depicted a drunken, crazy man waving guns around and, and driving around drunk in Nevada. Um, and from that, uh, that, 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 that touched something in the public and, and fascinated the public, that story. And it, um, and then this, and then people started to retell the stories of Ty Cobb, uh, based on that article, which sort of, in a way, that article sort of made sense about the aggressive ball play. It, it sort of, you know, it connected to that idea of the aggressive ball player that everyone knew. Um, and 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 became believable for that reason. And in like a game of telephone uh, at a party or something like that, you know, when you repeat a story and embroider on it and embellish it, um, that's what happened with that story. In in the 1980s, another author named Charles Alexander wrote a book, um, a biography of Ty Cobb, in which he accepted too much of of Stump's writings and then made mistakes or somehow embellished it himself, uh, describing as black uh, several people that Cobb had fights with who actually were not black. Uh, and uh, and that's how the racism element got in there. And um, it's really a study in mass psychology because people... You could you could sense the fascination that people had with a with a monster or a villain, and uh, and Al Stump was a, was he wasn't a very good writer, but he was a great sensationalist and a master at creating this almost cartoonish villain who whose name happened to be Ty Cobb, but who, who who wasn't who wasn't really the same at all as as the real Ty Cobb. What are your thoughts on the biopic starring Tommy Lee Jones, the film from the mid-1990s that was called Cobb? Uh, did, did that uh, help Ty Cobb's reputation at all, or just the <laughs> no, opposite? No, my thoughts on that aren't too, uh, aren't too favorable. I, uh, I uh, interviewed Ron Shelton, the director, as part of my research for this book, and uh, Shelton is really in the, the, that book was based on the work of Al Stump. And in fact, Al Stump wrote his second book that came out in 1996 to be a kind of a companion to that book. The, the movie, it, as it turned out, was a bomb and it was withdrawn in a, in a week from the theaters. But the book caught on and the book was a, a big bestseller. And the book was like an extrapolation of that article from 30 years before of, uh, 
of the drunken, crazy, gun-toting uh, Ty Cobb. But it's funny, uh, when I talked to Shelton, I asked him, I said, there's a scene in the movie in which Ty Cobb tries to rape a uh, cigarette girl in a Vegas uh, casino, and he fails because he's old and drunk, And but he's, you know, he does his horrible deed. I said, I never saw anything in the history about that. Where, where did you get that from? And Ron Shelton said to me, well, that's something we made up on the set as we were going along because we, we thought it was the sort of thing that, that Ty Cobb would have done. So that, that's the level of the credibility that we should, uh, we should give that movie. It's not historically accurate at all, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's not very fun to watch, I don't think. And that's a pretty egregious thing to just insert into a film, you know, with, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not as if, okay, you know, we'll show them like having an extra drink in a bar or having some minor incidents, uh, you know, an attempted rapist, uh, my goodness, oh, we just threw it in because, oh, that's kind of the guy that he was, that's, uh, boy, that's taking a, a lot of liberties with this guy's life, it really yes, does. Yes, and, and that's in the spirit of, of uh, everyone embroidering and retelling these tales, People, you know, you couldn't get away with it. I say this in my book that you couldn't get away with it if it was Abraham Lincoln. If you said Abraham Lincoln, you know, attempted to rape someone or beat up a black man, uh, people would say, wow, where'd you get that? What's your proof? What's your source? Uh, but if you, if you say it about a ball player, a pop cultural figure who's long dead and, and is not around to defend himself, people say, wow, that's fascinating, you know, tell us more, you know. Uh, and I've noticed that that's, that's part of the, the psychology of it. You know, people say stuff because they can get away with it. They almost become like, a, like a, someone who writes a historical novel and starts with a creation that's a real person but then gives them dialogue and gives them, you know, stories and incidents and anecdotes that never happened in real life. How did this man from Georgia come up to you, Detroit, and become a Detroit Tiger? This was on the heels of a terrible family tragedy just weeks after his mother killed his father, and he became a Detroit Tiger right after that. Give us uh, the exactly. background. That's exactly right, Martin. Yeah, it was, uh, Ty Cobb was a Southerner, and he played for a team in the minor leagues called the Augusta Tourists. And they were called that because in those days people didn't go as far south as Florida, uh, and uh, Augusta had a big wintertime tourist industry. And uh, he was uh, he was leading the the the, uh, the Sally League, the Southern Atlantic League, and uh, in in um, in 1905, uh, in the middle of the season, and the Tigers were doing kind of miserably, and uh, they were desperate for players. The Tigers uh, trained uh, had spring training in Augusta, Georgia, uh, with that team, and they played them a lot in the uh, in the course of spring training. So they knew about Cobb, but they had a very bumbling manager and a very bad system in that time, and they, they'd kind of forgotten about him. And the manager sent the scout down south just out of desperation, not really not really looking for Cobb in particular or forgetting about him. And 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 but Cobb was having a great year down there, so they signed him. And uh, and brought him up, but in the interim, b- before he could uh, get from Augusta to Detroit, this thing happened in his family that his mother shot and killed his father uh, right outside their house in Royston, Georgia, uh, late at night, and uh, through the window. And it's still not clear. His mother was arrested for uh, attempted murder and uh, um, uh, you know. Uh, Felonious manslaughter, I think it was called, actually, and 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 tried and and acquitted, but it's still not clear. The circumstances are still not clear. There was a lot of controversy at the time, so about whether whether she was 
uh, cheating on him, and he was checking up on her by peeking in through the window. The, the upshot was that not only did Cobb lose his father suddenly and tragically, but the family was brought down in shame and, and controversy, uh, and he really didn't know how to act towards his mother. His mother had killed his father. Did he, did he console her? Did he accept consolation from her? You know, in a case like this, she's, she's arrested and on an awaiting trial. Uh, it was a very traumatic time for him, and he came up uh, two, uh, about two weeks after that happened. He arrived in Detroit and in the major leagues. Uh, and how to start his major league career. And that was in 1905, is that correct? 1905, yeah. Hmm. And it didn't go, it it only went so-so that first, from August, he came up in August until uh, early October, I guess, when the season ended, the the, the Tigers didn't make the, uh, the, didn't win the pennant that year, so they didn't have a postseason. But uh, he only was batting about 241, I think, at the end of that first year. but he was confident that he could come back the next year and be better just because that was part of his nature. <laughs> he didn't have the numbers to back him up, but uh, uh, he thought he could do it, and he certainly did. By the next year, he was, uh, he was one of the best players in baseball. Charles, what made him so good? And, and is there any film footage of him? I mean, he had this kind of bizarre split-hand approach at the bat, which just looks really kind of bizarre. I don't know if anyone really bats like that at all these days. He doesn't look like a super powerfully built guy like, say, Babe Ruth. What made him so incredibly good with records that still stand here through 2015? Yeah, he uh, he's you know he's still the highest batting average ever. He still holds the record for uh, several things, including stealing home and and batting. He you know he was he always uh, he was always called a natural all through his life, and he hated that because he said he worked very hard to make himself who he was. That he was not a natural athlete, uh, and uh, so he didn't like to be called that. He's he was uh, he had an athletic build. He was about six foot one. He was. He was in the beginning of his career more like 170 pounds, and then he he put on weight as he as he played in his prime. He was probably about 190 pounds, so he wasn't small. He was, uh, and for, especially for that that time, he was he was a kind of a strapping guy who who looked athletic, uh, but he 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 had this uh, as you say this split hands grip, which was a way of sort of choking up on the bat a little bit and keeping a separation in his hands. And at the last minute, he'd decide whether he was going to bring the bottom hand up to, to poke, you know, really choke up on the bat and poke the ball over the infielder's head or bring the top hand down closer to the knob and then swing for the fences, which in the, in the dead ball days were almost impossible to reach, but to try to knock it over the, the outfielder's head. It, it was not, it was an odd uh, grip, but it wasn't completely... It wasn't unique. He, uh, Honus Wagner, for one, another one of the dead ball, you know, legendary guys, uh, also used that grip, and 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 Tris Speaker used it, I think, occasionally. But uh, but but Cobb used it all the time, and and uh, Cobb was a real scientist as a as a player. He even with his footwork, he had a very unusual stance where he kept his he would he would put his feet sort of together, and then he would change his jump in his stance at the last minute when the pitcher um, threw the ball, sometimes he would jump, uh, because he was either going to pull the ball or, uh, or poke it to the opposite field. And so he was always trying to fake you out with his footwork and fake you out with his handwork um, 
his, uh, his, his big, his slogan, his mantra was he wanted to be a mental hazard for the other team. And, and, and that's the, those are some ways that he did it. And it, that was an unusual approach to the game at those times, to kind of be a mental hazard for the other team. Now we sort of take it for granted that people will try, you know, a good player in any sport will, will try to give the other his opponents things to worry about. But in those days, it was considered sort of dirty pool and ungentlemanly to act that way a little bit. Mm. Is there much in the way of movies of, of him at the plate or much in the way of still photography? Nice nice photos in your book, but is there much beyond that? Are there any films of him at, at, with, the, with the Tigers? There are some short films that you can find on YouTube, uh, and actually there are more. People seem to be finding more and more uh as time goes on, even in the four years that I worked on the book, new things surfaced that, that hadn't been seen before. They tend to be very short snippets and uh, from from angles that are not terribly helpful, but you know you can appreciate them for what they are. There's one that came up recently of Cobb and Babe Ruth taking swings, in which both of them look like look like it wasn't their best day at the plate, or maybe they were just goofing around. <laughs> so we're stuck with these little clips that we have uh, of them, and the still photography in those days. Um, we have a great picture on the front of the book and some great pictures inside, but it was it was a rare thing, and then to catch. You know, uh, a, a, a nice moment of action was rare, but some exist, and they're they're kind of beautiful to see in their in their black and white glory. All right, let's get to this. Whole, you know, besides that, what, what, I don't know if it's a myth or not. Here, you tell us. Dirty player spikes high, always trying to hurt the baseman, trying to tag him out. Is, is how much you, you seem to dispel a lot of this? Was he a dirty player? Is that just way out of the ballpark to call him that? Is that unfair to call him that? Well, it's it's it is the short answer is yes, it is unfair to call him that. And I have more than a chapter in the book devoted mm-hmm. to other players. Uh, I, there was a guy on the team on the Tigers in 1905, and for a couple years after that, named Germany Schaefer, and he was a kind of a uh, the team clown. But but he said a very astute thing at one point. He said, you know, he said Cobb never hurt anyone with his spikes, and everyone who wears spikes for a living understands that. And what I found in my research was that the fans and the media loved this idea of the, in those days of Cobb, uh, you know, coming in spikes first. But the players, almost to a man, understood what was going on and did the same things themselves when they were running the bases. And by the way, in those days, were not didn't would not hesitate to stomp down on him and other base runners as they were sliding in with their spikes. You know, I have a quote in which Cobb in 1958 is talking to uh, uh, the guy from the New York Times, a reporter, and he, he rolls up his pants and he shows him all the scars on his legs from the from the other guy's spikes coming in on him. That's that's the way it was in those days. Now, having said that, Cobb had he had nine different types of slides. He was an artist at sliding, and almost all of them were were fadeaways and fancy things where you, where you give the other guy very little to touch. That was the beauty of it. You know, you don't come barreling into him and, and, and make it easy for him to tag you out. You give the guy very little to touch. Well, occasionally, and, and this is where the other players backed him up, he understood, he believed, Cobb, that, that the runner's right was to that space right in front of the bag. And, and, and if you put your hand there and if you put your foot there, then, then that was your watch, as they said in those days. That was your business if you wanted to stand there. But, and then he might barrel into you. But otherwise, he was trying to avoid you. And um, it's, it's, 
it's fascinating. You know, you know it, one interesting thing about it is it's so early in the century that, that the people that were watching organized baseball hadn't grown up playing organized baseball. The, the sport on that level was still that new. So the spikes to these people were something very exotic and weird, and they hadn't worn them in high school, and they hadn't realized they're just another piece of locker room you know, stuff, and that you can get killed by a ball or a bat, you know. Uh, there's a lot of dangerous things if they're misused. So there was this fascination with spikes as they were this kind of crazy, medieval, weird thing that, you know, that people were using, and uh, that and people, not just Cobb, but other people were using to hurt each other. But that really wasn't, it, re- it really wasn't the case, and I guess you'd have to say if you have to read my book to get the to see the full argument for it but i think most people will come away with the understanding that the players backed him up on that that he was not a vicious cruel guy and he wasn't that by personality either believe it or not i mean a lot of people are going to have a hard time believing that because of all they've heard over the years mm. Now, we spent 22 seasons, I believe, with the Tigers, of course, appeared in the World Series with the Tigers their first three years in the series. Unfortunately, didn't win any of those three World Series back in 1907, 1908, and 1909. Were those three years his his best years with the Tigers, or did those come after the World Series appearances, Charles? Well, um, yeah, I guess you could argue what his single best year was. uh, it was. It wasn't. It probably wouldn't have been those years. Yeah. He actually, and, and in the World Series, Cobb never did all that well for whatever reason. The Tigers were in those years. They didn't quit the, the first time they were in the series against the Cubs. They lost in four games. The next year, they lost in five games, and then they played the uh, the Pirates in the. Um, in 1909, and they lost. It went seven games, but somehow it never felt very, very close. If you read the uh, the news accounts, you know my my favorite year for him is uh, probably 1911, in which he batted 420, and uh, <laughs> he, you know he led the league in uh, hits, runs scored, stolen bases, and almost every other uh, category. And uh, you know, everyday player to hit 420. Um, it, it it was it was quite an accomplishment. It's just mind-boggling. I mean, that's approaching <laughs> 500. I mean, I can't even. It's hard to imagine that. It's just hard to imagine that. All right. No. The next year he sank all the way down to 409. Oh so, boy! Oh, a yeah. tough year the next year. Yeah. Right. Talk about the, the again. Uh, I hate to you know harp on this, but it, talk about this. These myths or semi myths that have uh, grown over the years about Ty Cobb being this horrific racist. You 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 delve very deeply into a couple of these incidents. This the one very notorious incident uh, in uh, Cleveland, right at a place called mm-hmm. the Euclid Hotel. And I mean, you just tear this whole thing apart. But tell us about that and and give us your final thoughts about what Ty Cobb thought about black people, about African Americans. Did he really hate them all? Uh, again, the short answer is no, absolutely not. And uh, um, this is, um, you know, it's it's really amazing what would happen when someone starts a snowball rolling and it keeps rolling and, and gathering, you know, and, and and you know any number that gets doubled and redoubled, how how large and formidable it could be. When I was working on this book, a couple of times people said to me, "Are you going to write about the the black waiter that he killed in Cleveland, that he or that he stabbed in Cleveland?" Sometimes I'd hear that uh, just for being uppity, and this was a myth. And you know, there's no 
in the newspaper accounts, in the, even in even in Stump's book, uh, there's there's no story about a waiter being stabbed in Cleveland. But that that's something that has grown from the retelling, and it traces back to this story that when Cobb came in late one night. Uh, to the Euclid Hotel in Cleveland, as you say, and he he probably had a few drinks, and he he got in, he got in a tussle with the bellboy. He wanted to be taken to the room where the the, the tie, his tiger teammates were shooting craps and playing poker, and the bellboy wouldn't take him there late at night. He only take him to his own room. And then when the when the, he started fighting with the bellboy, the the night watchman came over to see what was going on, and he wound up in a scuffle and a very bad scuffle with the night watchman. Now the problem is that these are all, these two men are often described as African American, but I've in my research and in my checking of the census accounts, I've proven beyond a doubt that they weren't. They were white. Those two men. So there's no racist overtones uh, at all to, to this fight, if only because. There were no black people involved in this fight. Um, on, on, on a larger and and, and um, uh, Charles Alexander makes that mistake. And on a couple of cases, there's a fight where Cobb gets in a fight with a young butcher's assistant. It's sort of famous to people who know the Cobb story. And that that man is often said to have been black. He wasn't. He was white. And you can go back to the census reports and and see that as well as the way the the stories were covered in the papers. Um, so Cobb. Thought to, you know, even Stump didn't say he was a racist. That got added later after, after Stump. It's part of the embroidery, believe it or not. A lot of it comes from the fact that Cobb was born in 1886 in Georgia. Assumptions are made about him. But here's the thing. He, comes, he happens to descend from a long line of abolitionists. His grandfather was a uh, preacher, uh, or his great-grandfather was a preacher who preached against slavery and was run out of his, his town in North Carolina. His father was a newspaper rep- um, editor and an educator, and the newspaper he worked for was own- were owned by abolitionists who bragged about uh, that they'd voted for Abe Lincoln uh, in, the, in the 1860s. Uh, and he comes from that kind of background. Uh, actually, Cobb himself said nothing about race, until the 1950s, because no one asked him, and until the 1950s when he strongly came out in support of integrated baseball, and he told the Sporting News that the Negro, he said, should be accepted and wholeheartedly, not grudgingly. He has the right to play sports, and who's to say he has not? That's a quote from Ty Cobb in the Sporting News. And apart from that, Cobb visited a lot of Negro League games. He threw out the first ball at some. He hung around in the dugout with the players. There's actually evidence in the other direction, and that's what makes this such a fascinating uh, project for me, and I hope a fascinating book for other people, when they see that the truth, uh, when you get down to the history and not just the wishful thinking or the assumptions, the truth is very different than the conventional wisdom. Fantastic information. Wow, Charles, this must have been really uh, uh, quite a revelation, as you said, (laughs) as you got into the research for this book, that... I am spending way more time on this than I ever thought I would, you know. But that, that's got to be great, though, as a writer. I mean, to just, to just you know, it's write the, only the time ship with ever this happened guy. to me, Martin. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that I went in thinking one thing. I mean, you know, we're, we're supposed to be ha- keep an open mind as right. a journalist. And, uh, and, but keep, you know, okay, I'm willing to have my mind changed, but it's, it seldom has happened. And it's never happened like this, because I had to completely rethink the book proposal that I sent in for this was, <clears throat> was all about the monster cob. Right. And I was just going to find fresh stuff about that. Oh, you know? yeah, 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 puppy, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Um, did he have many fr- final question, Charles? Just one. Did he have many friends? He sounds. Was he a loner? Did he have uh, good relationships with other ball players? I mean, great picture of him uh, with Babe Ruth. Where you you describe their their rela- friends in baseball. He did, and 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 uh, here again, uh, every, people fit, you know retrofit the details to fit the myth. Uh, he had uh, he he was like a guy. A guy named Lou Brissy, who's a great old player who played in the generation after Cobb and has since passed away since I interviewed him, he said, look, he said Cobb was like, you know, like A-Rod today or Ted Williams or Derek Jeter. They, they travel with the team and they play with the team, but everyone on the team understands they're kind of in a different category as far as the media goes, as far as their salary goes. And some, some people were not that warm and friendly to him because of that. And he, he also, he was very hypersensitive, so he, you know, he could be not friendly back to some people. You know, he wasn't an angel. He was a real flesh-and-blood human being. In the case of Ruth, they started out as rivals, and, and Cobb was highly annoyed by him and all the attention he was getting for his new way of playing baseball, this swinging for the fences, hitting home runs uh, uh, technique. And, uh, but in, after they retired, they wound up as actually good buddies and drinking buddies, and they played a lot of golf together. Uh, Cobb at his home would often have uh, 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 a lot of players. Mo Berg would come down there and uh, Tris Speaker and, uh, um, and a lot of baseball writers. That was not unusual in those days when, when the writers and the ball players were in the same socioeconomic class, that they would uh, visit each other's homes and, and hang out together. Um, it's often said that only three people came to Cobb's funeral when he died in 1961 from baseball. And that is true because his family said it was a private service, and they asked people not to attend uh, specifically. And and but but if you look at the at the uh, outpouring of uh, stories and columns in the newspapers that, that happened at that time, and the quotes from people remembering him fondly and warmly, uh, and and also if you look at the thousands of people who lined the roads in Georgia uh, and stood outside the church uh, where he died. You'll see that to say that only three people came from baseball is an extremely misleading statistic. Uh, and uh, um, he, he wasn't uh, everybody's cup of tea, and everyone wasn't his cup of tea. But we could say that about anyone could say that about themselves, anyone who has any bit of personality, I think. Thanks again for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with author Charles Learson about his new book, Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.